In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I am old now, but when I was young I was received into the church. I was not at all attracted by the splendour of her great ceremonies, which the Protestants could well counterfeit. Of the extraneous attractions of the church which most drew me was the spectacle of the priest and his server at low mass, stumping up to the altar, without a glance to discover how many or how few he had in his congregation. A craftsman and his apprentice. A man with the job which he alone was qualified to do. That is the mass I have grown to know and love. The English writer Evelyn Waugh, now long dead, convert to Catholicism, one of a number of very brilliant converts. I suppose Graham Greene would have been another of similar standing. Waugh would be regarded as a great observer of the human condition. Probably not the kindest man in many respects, although he was, he was known for being extremely kind to friends. I think it was Nancy Mitford who said to him once that she couldn't figure out how he could possibly call himself a Christian with the things he said about people. And his answer was, well, imagine what I would be like without sanctifying grace. And what Waugh loved was the spectacle of the priest whispering the sacred words into the dark, not looking to the left or right to see it here congregation. I'm reminded of some years ago when I was called to the scene of a death and it was at night by the time I arrived, it was dark, it was raining and the death, which was a very tragic one, had taken place in a farmyard and everyone else was leaving, the, the guards, the medical people, everyone had, had done what they could do and as is often the case, then quite reasonably left it to the priest. And it's at that point you know that you either can do precisely what a priest is supposed to do or you can't. The Latin word for priest is, is uh, one of them is a pontifex. One of the great titles of the Pope is the Pontifex Maximus, a title inherited from the Roman emperors, the supreme priest. And it comes from two Latin words, pons meaning a bridge and facere meaning to make or to build. The priest is a bridge builder. That is what a priest does. It is the core of what a priest does. He builds a bridge which has one pier, if you like. It's of two piers and an arch. Think of it like that. One pier is in the physical world, in this world, in the rain, in the dark, in the dank and depressing circumstances of a tragic death like that. And the other pier of the bridge is in the metaphysical. It's in the beyond. It's in God. And to do that with your whole being and your life takes at the very least nerve and a head for heights. Neither of which I have, by the way. To do that, to do it well, requires a tremendous willingness to become theocentric, God-centered, to believe in what is on the other side and that it can support the edifice and support you while you're on it. And so I knelt in that farmyard. The others all had precise and technically clear things to do, legally circumscribed things to do. They had to verify death and they had to take a report. They had to do this, they had to do that. They had all done their job. They had all left. And here was I, on my own. And I said the prayers into the dark, into the rain, in the presence of the body. I probably have never been more a priest in the time of my priesthood than that night. 
even though I doubt if anyone there afterwards that I spoke was conscious of my having contributed much. But then, as Waugh said, one of the things he liked about low mass, and low mass was simply, in the old Latin mass had low mass and high mass. Low mass, to put it at its uh, simplest, uh, had no music. It was whispered. The priest went to the altar. He stumped up to the altar in Waugh's words. He stumped up to the altar with his apprentice to do a job that only he was qualified to do, to speak into the dark, into the chaos for the people. And the crowd passing on the street outside the London crowd, let's say, the London street, did not know or care what he was at. Perhaps only a handful of people in the church watching, listening to And the priest, impervious to that, impervious to his audience, his public, to whether they liked or didn't like what he was doing, only centred on what he has swore his life away to do for them, whether they knew they needed it or not. And behind him, as the Italians call a server, the chiarichetto, the little baby priest, Behind him, the little apprentice in his surplice and soutane and his miniature priest gear, answering the prayers. That was how the Mass was said in those days. I'm put in mind of the feast of Yom Kippur, in the time of the temple, the Jewish people, when the high priest, and only he, would enter the Holy of Holies. The cubic room at the back of the temple which was divided from the rest of the temple by a special magnificent veil. I think, I think there was a new one woven every year and which originally would have contained inside the Ark of the Covenant and the, the golden cherubim, the, the statues of the angels. And the menorah, I think, was in there as well, the great candlestick. But once a year, the high priest would go in behind the veil. Only he. And they said that they would tie a rope to his ankle in case he died inside, because nobody would dare to go in after him. Because they had the ancient dread, the horror religiosus, Kierkegaard calls it, of the, 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 the tremendous mystery of the beyond of the utterly unknown, the fear of God. It's a very, very complex idea. It's not just simply quaking in your boots, but the full appreciation, the wonder at God. And he would go in on behalf of the people and he would scatter the blood from the sacrifice in the dark and he would say the prayers and he would whisper the name which only he knew how to pronounce To this day, we do not know how the so-called tetragrammaton, the the consonants of, of, we we pronounce it as Yahweh or Jehovah. But in fact, nobody knows how that name was pronounced because Hebrew at the time was written consonantally and without vowels. I think modern Hebrew is actually written the same way. The Masoretic scribes, much, much later, centuries after Christ, added in the little dots and, and dashes, the dagashes and all these, these little marks to show where the vowels went. But in fact, such a thing was unknown. And only the high priest knew how that name was pronounced. That name. And he whispered it into the dark for the people, for the sins of the people. He addressed the Godhead. 
Now, in the last episode, if you remember, I talked to you, those gave you those stories from Rosemary Sutcliffe and Tommy Tiernan about cornering your wolf, killing your wolf, earning your warrior scarlet, facing the badger. Okay, as, as Tiernan hilariously parodied. And the point is clear. The word vocation comes from the Latin word voco, I call. It is a call. We tend to use it of professions that are obviously a call, and yet every single human being has a vocation. And furthermore, as Newman put it in his beautiful English, God has formed you for some definite service. Some definite service. And only he knows that, and it's your job to find out what it is. What are your orders? What does he want? So everyone has a vocation to sanctity, no matter what they do. What I mean is they have a vocation to know God. What I mean is they have a vocation like Abraham to know God, to haggle and bargain with God, to give lip to God, to fight with God, to struggle and wrestle with God. As Abraham did to sit God down at the table and serve him food. You are called to that knowledge of God. You are called to that spectacular insolence. A real insolence from the point of view of the Jewish people prior to Christ, of knowing God. But what does he specifically want you to do? Because one pier of the bridge is in this world, and this world is exact. And if you're here now, you can't be there now. You can be here now and there then, if you take my point. The world, space, time, there are restrictions on you. So there is something specific you're being asked to do. What are you being asked to do? So we'll say, for instance, oh, I couldn't be a nurse. I couldn't be a nurse. I, that's a vocation. It's not a job, it's a vocation. Listen, every job is a vocation. The nurse's job is very obviously a vocation. It is, it is a tremendous job. But every job is a vocation. And teaching is a vocation. It's not for everyone. Believe me, it's not for everyone. Believe me, it's not for everyone. Teaching is a great vocation. So you're, you're called to something. You're called to something. And the trouble is, if you don't heed the call, you may still live a good life and get to heaven. But the trouble is, when you get to heaven, you'll know everything. It won't be God judging you. It'll be God trying to hold you back from yourself. Because you'll see how stupid you were. Or at least I, I expect I will anyway. Maybe you're not stupid, but I, I can assure you I am. You'll, you'll see the, you know, how God repeatedly tried to talk to you. And you wouldn't listen. What does he want? Can we make this even simpler? No, no, don't, don't get mad with me now because I'm not condescending. I'm not being smart. When I say can we make it even simpler, I mean for me too. Like can we just think this out? Belt and braces, just get down to the bottom line. What do you want? What do you want? That may not be what God wants, but at least if you've started with that, we're in business. You're doing something. There's a whole crowd of people in the world, and honest to goodness, I don't know if they know what they want. What do you want? And the next question is, what does God want? Because I can assure you that that is what you truly want at the core of your being. But you just can't put a name or a face or a shape on it. What is he asking you for? And I suppose what I'm going to talk about for the rest of this talk, and it's, it's an interesting topic, 
It's about one vocation, which is very definitely and obviously a vocation, and which, I'm sorry, the politically correct Catholics might as well switch off at this point, because I'm not going to be politically correct. It is the greatest of the vocations. Please don't confuse this with your probably all-too-accurate perception of how far the priests you know may be from the ideal of that, when I say it's the greatest of the vocations. I'll tell you what I have a problem with here. With the scandals and everything, we ended up with a standard of priestly priestly living of a vocation that was really quite low. You know, if you hadn't done anything wrong, you were smelling of roses for a while there. And that's very bad for priests because uh, what's good for everyone is especially good for priests. You need to be held to the impossible. That's how you grow. Especially when you discover the impossible isn't as impossible as you thought. And as Sarah, Abraham's wife, is reminded by her divine interlocutor at the Oaks of Mamre, nothing is, is anything impossible for God. And that's where the other pier of the bridge is. The bridge is built into the impossible. It's built into the range of the minus numbers. The numbers that don't exist, but you can't do maths without them. The numbers which are a cartography of nothing. A mapping, a quantifying of nothing. Minus one, minus two. Have you ever, have you ever met a minus person? Have you had a minus meal? Do you pay for your minus goods and minus money? I can barely add myself. Even an idiot like me, an innumerate idiot like me, can notice that people who don't believe in God go on about mathematics, which I've always believed and been told was the most mystical of the sciences. You're a mathematician, you're a bridge builder. That means if you're an engineer, you're a bridge builder, and I don't just mean literally. An architect, you're a bridge builder. You're using maths, you're a scientist, you're a physicist, you're a bridge builder. And the other pier of that bridge is you don't know where. But you have the audacity, you have the insolence of a son or daughter of God, and you map it out. Because that's what human beings do. We're cheeky, we're forward, we have no manners. We're nosy, we're curious because we're heirs to the kingdom. And we have all the swaggering insolence of one who expects to inherit. And so we talk about the head swaggerer, if you like, who is the priest. He is the one who leads the crowd into the dark, leads them across the bridge, leads them into the beyond. I hate when people refer to somebody as a good priest. You listen to me and you remember that I've been a priest for nearly 30 years. There are no good priests. There was one, and you know what we did to him. And if he came back, we'd do it again. Don't you fool yourself. We would do it again. How do you be a good priest? A priest is an icon of Jesus Christ. He's a, a, a living a living sacred representation of the Redeemer. He is Alter Christus, another Christ. This is the only perfect man who's ever lived, a man God. How do you do that without making an absolute pig's breakfast out of it and not a particularly tidy pig? The answer is you do it badly. The answer is that you fail. So what is the priest called? He is called to be a holy fool. He is called to be a divine failure. He is called to be an object of excoriation because he has reached to the stars and fallen on his face. And he keeps doing it. And that is what you're for. The bridge builder is not a very dignified thing to be when nobody believes that you need a bridge across that river. 
when nobody believes that it's possible to build a bridge across that river, and when nobody believes that even if it were possible and even if it were needed, you, you clown, could build that bridge across that river. So I think that's pretty comprehensive. That's what the priest is called to do. So those of you out there, the few of you who have the courage to even dream or think of the priesthood now with so much against you, if you feel you're good enough to be a priest, you stay well away from us. We have enough trouble in the church without Egypt's like you. Okay, you'll get us all killed. If you're good enough to be a priest, you'll let you go. All priests are failures by definition. There are grades of failure, some more honourable than others. That's as good as it gets. Outside of the grace that will one day make us all perfect in the end. That's as good as it gets. So you don't have the belly for that. You don't have the stomach for that. You're the kind of person who believes that their trips to the loo are the most fragrant in the nation. And that's putting the, the politest term on a very, very demotic joke. But it's a good joke. It's a very telling point. You can't live with the disgusting side of humanity, with the failure, with the betrayals, with the cheapness, the lousiness, then you can forget the priesthood. You're going to sit in the confessional. You're going to sit in the confession. The confessional, as it has evolved and as we know it, in the dark as it should be, because confessions should be in the box and they should be brief and to the point because you are in a place that has no floor and you're over an abyss that is 5,000 light years deep. So you don't want to spend too much time in there talking to the weirdo on the other side of the grill, which is what he is, which is what he's supposed to be, which is what he's being paid to do, to be a weirdo and a freak and a failure and useless and pointless and an idiot. Have I covered all the bases? I think it'll do for the moment anyway. You don't want to be too long in there. You're going to switch places. You're going to sit in his place. You're going to dare to do that. Do you know how you're upping the ante there? Do you know how priests will be judged? On the other hand, if you do have a vocation to be a priest and you don't answer, oh, jeepers, I'm not looking forward to the judgment because my, oh Lord, I'm not even going to go there. Okay, let's not start. But you don't go into the priest. Let's start with don't go into it. You don't go into it. You ignore the vocation completely. All the work that you could have done will now not be done. Some of it may be done by somebody else, but it wasn't meant to be done by them. It was meant to be done by you. And if it's done by them, it won't be the same work. Because even on this side of the grave, people are not machines. The meeting of two people is a tremendous event. The meeting of a believer, or a non-believer for that matter, with a priest is an event. It is the meeting with Christ. It is literally the meeting with Christ. If you were supposed to do that, well, then it won't be done. Because you didn't do it. And you say, oh, you scared me off. You say, oh, Lord, but, you know, priests will be judged harder. And, you know, what if I made a mess of it? And what if it... Okay, let me give you an idea of what a little bundle of cuddles God is. Okay? If you answer his call, he'll treat you like dirt. If you don't answer his call, he'll treat you like dirt and you'll go to hell. You pick. You, you, you pick that one out. When one of the greatest mystics in the history of the church, I think I've quoted this before, Teresa of Avila, shouted up at him when she fell out of her, her carriage, turned over, crossing a ford in a storm. And she's there soaking wet, 
doing God's work. Half dead, lying in the river, and she looks up into the storm and she says, no wonder you have so few friends with the way you treat them. Now, I, th I think I've made my pitch, and I think I've made it with subtle attractiveness. And I would be confident that the numbers will rise now, interested in the priesthood after this podcast. <laughs> this is a seriously weird and dangerous thing to do. Very dangerous to lead at all. Very dangerous. High price for leadership. Jordan Peterson's very good on that. Listen to him on that uh, sometime about the, the whole alpha male thing and everything. The hours worked, the, the mastery of detail, the mastery of the thing. But spiritual leadership. Oh boy. And then you go into the priesthood, let's say, all right? You've at least enough cop not to say no to him. Okay, you've at least enough cop not to say no to him. So you go into the priesthood. And then you make a hash of that and you betray him. Now, I, I'm sure I don't have to talk too much about the effects of that. In our experience, in the abuse stuff, let's say, very often that abuse happened at a point at which the greatest good could have been done in somebody's life. That's a, almost a constant one notices. Now, I don't need to talk to you about the implications of that. And you can say back to me, you're, you're unmerciful, you're unkind, you're lacking in charity, hate the sin, love the sinner. I totally agree with you. I agree with you on every bit of that. But I seem to remember that that beautiful, phenomenal and terrifying person, Jesus Christ, I remember the curses he heard at those who scandalized the little ones. Do you remember the millstones in the sea? Priests are broken. Priests are sinners, like everybody else. Treasures and earthen vessels, carrying a tremendous responsibility, having all their human baggage, and none of us gets it right. And all of us mess up. But there is no excuse for not searching. No excuse for not asking God what he wants. No excuse for not trying to listen. This generates a logic, an imperative that you must follow. And if he calls you to the priesthood, you should be a priest. And if he doesn't call you for the love of God, will you run as fast as you can and thank your lucky stars? Okay, you keep running. Because the closer he brings people to him, generally the more interesting their lives become. And I don't need to tell you how that could go. So you run and you keep running. There'll be something else he'll want you to do anyway. It'll be profoundly important because by definition, what he wants you to do is profoundly important. But the priesthood is peculiar. The priesthood is very peculiar. Kierkegaard said about Abraham, specifically regarding the so-called Akedah, the binding of Isaac, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac, which effectively was a sacrifice because he had the full intention of doing it. And neither party would have been able afterwards to forget that that had happened. So something very real had happened. Very, very terrifying and terrible. And Kierkegaard said about Abraham, he's like a somnambulist. He's like a sleepwalker, walking over an abyss. And all we can do is stand there as horrified spectators, watch him. And that's the priest. And he, he must do that. And what does Abraham give up in the Akedah? What, what does he give up in the sacrifice of Isaac? Which, as I said, humanly it's a sacrifice. He reached for the knife. His son saw him reach for the knife. 
The violence of this is almost unimaginable to us. It's bad enough for us, but to an ancient person, it is almost unthinkable. He has given up everything dear and familiar. He's been repeatedly told, go here, go there by God. Leave your country and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. Genesis 12. He has received many promises from God, but always the continual testing. I think there's an old Jewish tradition that Abraham was, was, uh, was tested 10 times. The Akedah was only the 10th. And certainly there is constant testing in the life of Abraham. And he is given this son when he and his wife are so old that both of them die laughing at the thought that they could have a son. Sarah famously in Genesis 18. And God takes her up on it. Why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. (laughs) No, no, you did laugh. I heard you. It's a very, very human interaction. But you will have a son. And uh, Isaac, the child of promise. And then... His son, his heir, he's asked to give him up. And God takes everything from him. This is the final test. And Abraham staggers home. I would say barely fit to stand. There's another Jewish tradition that Sarah dropped dead when they came back from Moriah with fright of what had happened. That's what the priest has asked for. And you may say, well, you're a diocesan priest. And I'm, I'm a secular, I'm a diocesan priest. I'm not a member of a religious order. I don't have a vow of poverty. Poverty just adopted me. You know, you may, you may say back to me, oh, well, there's a whole lot of stuff. You didn't give up. You do give it up. Because part of the priesthood is cultivated attachment whereby you can walk away from anything in your life at the drop of a hat if it's required by the church, if God's mission requires it, if the kingdom requires it. You're not allowed to marry, which is the most basic right. The church didn't invent marriage, doesn't claim to. It's natural law. That means you can't have sex, which is, again, a profoundly human thing to look forward to. That intimacy. You can't be permitted that level of intimacy because that intimacy always leads to sex or very often. So that whole area is cut off from you. Now, this is a very brutal thing to do to a man. The church is ruthless. For some people's priestly celibacy is a stumbling block. For me, it has always utterly reaffirmed my confidence, no matter how hard I found the celibacy. It has reaffirmed my confidence in the church. It has all the horror-struck, yet implacable obedience of Abraham reaching for the knife. It will do what has to be done. To be brought close to Christ, the priest must not allow anyone to have those normal claims on him. Now priests have friends and families that they come from and all of that and are close to them. And yet, if a man gets married, he leaves his parents, goes with his wife, sets up a new home, a new family, and she has to come first. And their kids, no matter what gratitude he has to his parents. And a priest, in a sense, marries the church. As Christ, the church is the bride of Christ, in persona Christi. That means he has nothing, even if he has. Most of the apostles weren't poor. They were reasonably well off. Uh, one or two of them, clearly, could have, they could afford hired help, which indicates that they were doing all right at the fishing, you know. It's money to be made and everything. And they left everything as they reminded them for him. A friend of mine, oh, this is a long time ago, he's a Church of Ireland minister. He ended up as an army chaplain on the Corrib. And um, he was entitled to live in an army house. And he had been an, a military chaplain years ago. This was only part-time and it was much later in his career. 
It went with the parish he was in. And he noted that in the deeds of the house, the army had the right to evict him and demolish the house at 24 hours' notice if the requirements of the service needed that. And that is the way with the priest. The requirements of the mission come first. So as I said, if you're not called to be a priest, good luck. If you're called to be a priest, my commiserations. Don't do anything stupid. Don't you say no to him. Don't do that. I don't blame you for quailing before this. I don't blame you for being repelled by it. The founder of Opus Dei, St. Jose Maria Escriva, said he was personally repelled by the life of the priest as a young man. And that his father, who was a devout Catholic, when he told him he was considering the priesthood, wept. Because as a devout Catholic, he understood the priesthood. And he said, my son, this is a hard thing to be a priest. He said, to have nowhere you belong. He said, whatever, whatever God wants, but it's hard. As a father, he wept. Like Abraham with Isaac. But like Abraham with Isaac, he trusted God and he trusted in God's goodness and that God would not do evil. So he obeyed God, that only good could come from it. Now, I said this before, I'm going to say it again. The problem isn't lack of priests. Okay. Not lack of good priests. The problem isn't lack of priests, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Anyway, none of them are good, starting with me. I think it's the lack of Catholics that might be the problem. See, as, as Newman observed when some aristocratic English Catholic bishop, and of course in, in the English church you had the old recusant families, the aristocratic families, who had just kept paying the fines in Elizabethan times, and had basically just stayed Catholic all those years. And uh, they didn't like these brash converts like Newman and Manning, you know. And one of them said to him irritably, what is the laity? And Newman's answer, which was deceptively mild, was that the church would look very strange without them. I have to make the same point here. Strange that I'm going to say now, you, you think I'm going to say we have a terrible need for priests. The church always has a terrible need for priests. Don't mind that. She's always whinging. Church is a terrible need for priests. You can never have enough priests. We don't need all the priests we probably had in the past, but we got them. What we need are Catholics. Then you'll have the priests. You Catholics, you'll have priests. Catholics produce priests the way people have babies and they, you know, life just goes on. They produce priests to look after them. In other words, God gives Catholics priests. If they are people of faith, they will be given shepherds if they're people of faith. So the problem we come back to is faith. The problem we come back to is not that we don't have enough priests, we don't, but we have enough priests for the Catholics. How many Catholics do we really have in the country? I mean, the real deal. You know the way I said that we, you know, there were excellent Catholics in Mount Joy probably doing time for some awful crimes. How, how many Catholics do we really have in the whole country. I don't mean holier-than-thou perfect people. That's not a Catholic. You shall know a Catholic by the extent of the mess. A Catholic is a work in progress, a spiritual building site. How many Catholics do we have? How many people do we have in this country who, who can pray in the words of Thomas Aquinas, who can pray the prayer of the dying thief? Great prayer. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Put in a word for me. It's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. I always like that thief. He's a really cool thief. 
This is a serious operator, that thief. You know, that's one of the first... Is he the first Catholic? I don't know. But he's certainly up there. And, and I love it because on, on the one hand, he has, he has that glimmer of faith and he's clearly in some ways a good man. He also has the thief's eye for the main chance. He sees a possibility and it's not temporal. He knows he's banjaxed temporally. I mean, you're nailed to a cross. Uh, well, things aren't going very well. I mean, this is what it is. But he sees something. He sees the bridge. That's a Catholic. A Catholic sees the bridge. May not be very dignified in how he gets to the bridge, or she. May not be very dignified on how they get across it, but they were never asked to be dignified about it. It's not a catwalk. They're not supermodels. Thanks be to God in some of our cases. Okay, because my supermodeling years are long over. We should just get across the bridge. Find the bridge and cross it. You know Turlough O'Carroll and the Irish harpist, the blind harpist? Yeah. What was he? Late 17th, early 18th century. A parish priest gave out to him because he wrote, you know those planksties? The, it's a corruption, of, I think, of an Irish word, maybe slauncher or something like that. They were, planksties were kind of uh, oh, lovely little, really elegant little tunes that were just written in praise of somebody who'd been nice to him. And he wrote a planksty in praise of a, a Cromwellian planter, a Protestant squire. And the parish priest lit him. He said, what were you, what'd you do that for? And Carolyn's answer was a great answer. It was a true Catholic answer. I praise the Ford where I find it. Your man had paid him. <laughs> Priest hadn't. <laughs> he, he was a patron. He had paid him. He had paid him to write some music for his family. I praise the Ford where I find it. There's a Catholic who's eye on the main chance, doesn't miss a trick, sees the bridge, makes for it. How many of those do we have in the country? I'd say tens of thousands, no more. If that, if that and far less among the young people. But look, I, I know I'm like a cracked record on this. I'm telling you the problem is the lack of priests. We have a serious lack of priests for, for manning the completely outdated system of administration and sacramental preparation that we have in the church. Because a lot of it, with the greatest of respect to everyone, is little more than the sort of the twitches, almost spooky twitches that can occur in the body of a dead person for some time after clinical death. I'm very sorry about that. You remember I talked about liquid modernity in the beginning and Zygmunt Bauman. I think Bauman is, quotes another, um, I haven't read this man, um, Ulrich Beck, a very well-known German sociologist who has this phrase, zombie institutions, that keep going. Now, I don't think the church is a zombie institution. It can't be. Sub-institutions, does that make sense? Things the church does can become zombies. They just don't answer anymore. You know, it's just kind of, they're still twitching. It's still twitching, but life has departed. So not enough Catholics, not enough little trad cats, medge heads, little cats, big cats, average cats, small cats, fat cats, lean cats, all kinds of cats. Weenie Catholics, calling all Catholics. We won't have to worry about the priests when we have the Catholics. And then these new Catholics, dynamic and committed to the faith, as the small number of them that we have are, can then get used to the fairly sloppy way in which we priests look after them and have for millennia. But we need Catholics. What if you're already in the priesthood? 
I think one of the biggest worries I have about priests and the priest, I have a whole lot of worries about it, okay? And and look, I mean, I'm a very mediocre priest, so I'm not criticizing anybody without, I'm in the mix too. Okay, let's be clear on that. We haven't fully developed yet the Catholic subculture that will produce the priests in numbers. But it's starting. We're getting the ghetto together. And the ghetto can be an interesting place to be. Hmm? A very productive and interesting, very creative place to be. The problem among priests is that I don't think we support each other with the right kind of fraternity. And I'm one of the world's worst at this. So I say we. I don't think our priestly culture is up to it. And I think a lot of priests are running on empty, getting by on the deep spirituality they once had, not getting the support and not giving it. Priests are very quick to complain that the bishop doesn't support them. But I worked for a bishop. I worked for an excellent bishop for 11 years. And I must say there were times he could have done with support. I saw that. There were times he could have done with a few phone calls from people who weren't looking up to him or weren't looking for anything and weren't afraid to take him on in a straightforward, honourable way at a meeting and speak their minds, which is what you want, and just call him up and say, look, okay, you know, I, I've just prayed for you. I've just said mass for you. Do you want to talk or is there anything I can do? So we do, we're not good at supporting each other. Diocesan priests tend to go it alone. And I'm speaking of diocesan priests. And there are strengths to that, but there are also great weaknesses. And I would say when we're together, I would say we suffer from having the kind of emotional culture among ourselves of the, of the, of the culture we came from. And that culture is gone. So that's a zombie institution again. But we priests still have the same reflexes. It's where you don't admit you have a problem. You don't look for help. You don't praise too much. You don't take praise well. You don't trust it. It was a culture produced by a very tough life in the past. But that culture is largely gone. Irish people are more affectionate. They are warmer. There is a much higher expectation of a satisfying emotional life. And that's a reasonable enough expectation. And I, I really do think we need to look at this. Because I think what has killed a lot of marriages is killing the priesthood as well, which is a, a, a tremendous poverty. A tremendous poverty. It's a spiritual and intellectual and cultural poverty of relationship. So I say when priests get together, they talk about such trivia. We talk about such, such ephemeral nonsense. Now, some of the things are important. All right, fair enough. A lot of priests are big into sport, which maybe people don't realise. Big into it. And they, they talk about sport non-stop. And sport is nothing. Sport is noble. Sport can do a lot for somebody. I taught in a sporting school. I saw it. I saw what sport can do. But for goodness sake, it's not enough. And if your conversation when you get together with other priests is mostly about golf and ga and rugby, oh, for the love of God. I remember a young fellow I was teaching once having an argument with me, a very likeable guy, a real hangman. And he said, I'll tell you, Father, the only things in life worth getting worked up about are rugby and sex. And I said to him, well, let's call him Tom. I said, Tom, even within that, I mean, shouldn't a man have his priorities? You're right, Father, he said, rugby comes first. <laughs> and all right, I mean, I enjoyed the wit at the time and the quickness of it. And all right, rugby is nothing. It certainly is not. Well, neither is sex, in fairness, if it's between two married people. But let's not go there for the moment. That's too exhausting and the time's nearly up. 
Rugby is nothing. But I mean, conversations that are continually about ephemera are often simply dodging the real event of meeting other human beings and talking. I remember once people talking about a priest who, he's dead now, he was, he was big into Opus Dei, he was, he was very earnest, as Opus Dei priests tend to be, he was very earnest, very serious. He was a real master tradesman, like Waugh. You know, Waugh had great respect. Waugh often used the image of the craftsman. He used it for a writer. He was the priest as master tradesman. But I remember one priest speaking up, because he was, he was being downed a bit, and I remember one priest speaking up and he said, I'll tell you something, he said, Father X, he called him by his first name, let's, let's say Jimmy, is the only priest I've ever known who asked me in conversation, how's the prayer going? Now we are master tradesmen of prayer. We are the bridge builders. We are of the worshipful company and guild of bridge builders. We build the bridges into the beyond. I've taken up beekeeping lately, and when a crowd of beekeepers meet, they talk about, surprise, surprise, wait for it, beekeeping. Because they're into beekeeping. I mean, when a crowd of carpenters go out for a bite to eat, I imagine they tend to talk about matters carpentry. And yet, when priests talk, it's so often about clerking. It's clerking. It's, it's the, the nuts and bolts of running parishes and managing buildings or whatever and trivia. And we don't talk enough among ourselves about our spiritual lives, our intellectual lives. I, I, I don't think the level of our conversation is very high. I think it's actually probably quite shockingly low. There is a story told about a Jesuit priest. This is a true story, apparently. There's a story told about a Jesuit priest, and I heard it told to Maynooth, who came back from a funeral in Dublin to, I think, Belvedere College, where he was teaching. And uh, he walked into the common room, took off his coat, uh, hung it up on a thing, and he said, well, a most extraordinary thing today, he said, I heard an intelligent sermon from a diocesan priest. And the story was told among diocesan priests as an example of, of Jesuit arrogance. But I told the story to a Jesuit priest, and he said it did happen. Because he said, I knew an old Jesuit who was there when it was said. But he said, what's not normally told in the story as it wound its way around Dublin? As the trouble with a witty answer is that he was sternly reproved for it by his colleagues. I hope to God that it couldn't be said that somebody would come back from a meeting with diocesan priests and say, well, I had the strangest experience today, an intelligent discussion among diocesan priests. So I'm calling on myself and I'm calling... I'm calling on us because I can, I can tell you for a fact that the intellectual standard and standard of education of most diocesan priests is very high. And it's time for us to reclaim that level of culture, which the old parish priests had and were proud of, and that, le- and, and that ability to function on that level of the one who builds the bridge into, into the beyond. Working in the marriage tribunal as I did years ago, I was capped by the fact that a couple could go out for three years and still their marriage would be null because they didn't know each other. And I thought it was a load of nonsense until I read some of the cases. I was a judge in the marriage tribunal. My God, I came to see how you could go out with a woman for three years or a woman with a man for three years in Ireland at the time and not know them. Because they were continually meeting in pubs and nightclubs. They couldn't hear each other. They were in the middle of a crowd of people who were getting tanked. I saw this in, in the lobby of a hotel while we were waiting to get a bite to eat at, at a meeting we were going to. And I saw a, a young couple, a handsome young couple come in, 
sit at a table, order some drinks, and you'd have thought, oh, isn't that lovely, you know, young couple having some quality time with each other. The two of them took out their phones. Is it any wonder marriages break up? Is it any wonder people leave the priesthood? Because I can assure you that the same mediocre, banal level of communication is going on among priests. So it's time for us to spend, priests need to spend more time with each other. They need to spend more quality time with each other. We need to talk more to each other about the tricks of the trade in the most positive sense, about our prayer lives, about our cultural lives, about our thinking, our reflecting. Uh, our insights, we need to be sharing that with each other more, not an endless diet and conversation of golf and ga. Our conversation was a Darrow O'Brien who used to end those programmes he had years ago with the words, keep it real. And for God's sake, keep it real. Be the master tradesman, stumping out, not looking to the left or right to see if you have a congregation, to whisper into the dark for the people behind you, to address the deity, to whisper the words of atonement and ask for forgiveness and bring the forgiveness back out across the bridge to him. That's what you're for. It was what you were made for. It is a terrifying life, but it is a magnificent life if you're called to it. You should be having with other priests the conversations of masters, of those who walk like Abraham on the abyss. That is what you are called to do. You remember that lovely prayer by Lacordaire, which has been given out on cards at, at ordinations years ago. It described the life of the priest and it ended, what a glorious life. And it is yours, O priest of Jesus Christ. St. Brendan, pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.